Hi all. So as we discussed in the episode, this recording has been well over a month coming, uh, starting with some gaming we did in early August with Sev, then the actual recording which we made over a week and a half ago. Wines and I have been really busy with preparing for a convention that's coming up in San Antonio. It's caused a momentary pod fade. We're still here, we still have an ambitious schedule for the next year, once we escape from this particular whirlpool of crazy. Uh, in particular, the information about the Kickstarter is seriously out of date. Uh, more on that as we get into the episode itself. Welcome to Radio Free Deimos, an Ixen Draconis fan podcast, broadcasting from a post-Deimos orbit from Voltaire Station. This week's episode is still sponsored by Marsco. Marsco, demanding 2.3 children for over 600 years. With me today, as per always, are my co-hosts, Wines, Hello. Ashtar, Arf, Arf. and I am Corbeau. This week we're wrapping up our, this month really, we're wrapping up our Marsco series with a little divergent topic, talking about... Family, which Marsco is really all about family. At least, I don't know, many things with large golden M logos are about family. I get them all confused at the end of the day. So we'll be dipping into that. We will also be discussing, uh, well, the big news, the 2.0 Kickstarter, which is launched as of three days ago. Super fun. And our own experiences with uh, 2.0, which you can find on the front page of the HSD Kickstarter. Oot. Immortalized forever. And I think that might be it for the evening. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get any news clippings this week, so you're off the hook. Unless you have something. But before we begin, I'd like to get to know our host a little bit better. So in the spirit of today's topic, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Kind of how you grew up? One of my fond memories is discovering the, that one of my uncles serviced the, the slaughtering robots back on his way station. Oh, tasty. And then he'd let us lick them clean. Well, that's nice. Yes. You get like massive like tongue gouges doing that, though. It sounds good. Well, you of... don't lick that part. Well, oh. n- not twice. <laughs> and how many times I've heard that said. <laughs> I'm glad that's the type of slaughtering robots you were talking about, because my mind went a different way. <laughs> we spend so much time in the gutter. At least I do. <laughs> I didn't know there were gutters in space. Sure. I remember my childhood kind of fondly. If schizophrenically, back on Kafka 6, my mom and dad decided to have a period house, which was really pretty common. It was a 20th century penal colony, and they really couldn't quite agree on the period. So I kind of have vague memories of like the Great Gatsby and like cyberpunk in a sort of collision. And I really don't know that cyberpunk is a period or really it's, it's all kind of a vague, hazy blur. They were kind of a mishmash, but I guess that was a childhood. We all have our own traumas. Or was it a technology, the cyberpunk branch of science? <laughs> I mean, it was Earth, who knows? It's a magical fantasy land full of whispers. LEDs had to be invented somewhere. They just didn't spring full foam from the head of Zeus? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I like the portable kind. That's pretty awesome. By, by Zeus, you mean that uh, senior VP for Pulse, right? No, Zeus brand. You know, they make uh, socks. Right. I thought they were starships. <laughs> How do you put on your shoes in the morning, Ashton? <laughs> hey, my feet aren't that big. <laughs> Tell us about your childhood. <laughs> well, let's see. Ganymede, dark, annoying, kind of distant. Purple. My parents were both sharks, so that was always fun. And, no, uh, pretty common. Yeah. 
nothing, nothing really to talk about. I just feel like we have so many questions left. Too. <laughs> Hop the first flight out. That's a great place to hide bodies. And if your parents are both sharks, <laughs> you don't need what's to worry about that. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> Giving mom a bus on the cheek and then putting bandages on your lips. <laughs> anything that big height for so long a time yeah i wonder what their next move will be well once again news from the hsd universe would be the upcoming launch you know, the past tense launch of the kickstarter and the upcoming launch of 2.0 officially uh, 2.0 is scheduled to be released in january 2019 which is not that far from now and the Kickstarter went live uh, three or four days ago at this point, over the last weekend. Um, we're just a bit late reporting on this because it's been almost a month since we recorded our last episode. We were involved in a playtest game for 2.0, which you can see fragments of on the front page of the Kickstarter. So this is more Explosion and Wines. This artwork has gotten in a while. It was about 12 hours of RP with an astounding number of technical difficulty issues. And I spent about two weeks trying to sound edit it into a workable block before just kind of we'll point you to the videos of the sessions themselves and you can you can enjoy them over your spare time sure but it was a pretty good playtest session uh it started off with a largely combat game for one and a half sessions where the party like went to do some simulations with virtual hosp hostage situation um irpf training red versus blue scenario right uh so it was simulated violence but it was fun simulated violence I had simulated healing saliva. That went badly. Um, <laughs> and then following that, we had a uh, space camp thing where our PCs took a team of precocious youth into deep space where everything fundamentally went wrong after that. It went about as well as you can expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I thought there was a restraining order on my character uh, already. but So that was the game, and at least most of it's online. I never have... I wasn't actually able to find the third episode last time. That was the one with the most technical difficulties. There was like rolling Discord blackouts the entire time. It was It was rough. What happens if you have a network the size of the solar system? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the lag time between Ganymede and uh, Mercury is two weeks. Always two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> that's that's not actually true anymore. No? Just just one more joke that uh, didn't disappear into the depths of history. Oh. We have light speed now. Oh, right, right. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Two weeks or 7,000 creds. <laughs> Same as in town. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. joke 700 years old every day. <laughs> yes. So, so looking back at our, at our game, uh, I realized it was a couple of weeks ago and it was a couple hours past midnight for us, but, uh, what are some of our takeaways from, from 2.0? I think what we're dealing with is going to be fairly close to the final rule set. So it was probably a fairly good run of the game to come. Well, I, I like that there's a distinction between being hard to hit and being able to shrug off damage. Um, th th those are good opposed ideas. Yeah, I did kind of get the sense that it was one of those sliders where you're either nimble or indestructible. And mm -hmm. somewhere between the two, there is truth. Yeah. But it wasn't a pure slider. You can definitely develop, you know, along those lines. Yeah, Especially with the techniques, there were quite a few that could boost add to or mitigate how armor slows you down. Yeah. I don't think any of our characters are really like super maximized for combat. Um, right. I was, you didn't notice, but okay. well, you didn't notice cause I was stealth, but I, oh. I was doing okay. Okay. No, I mean, we, we didn't, we didn't die. 
I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Twice. Were you even in the game, Corbo? No. No, I was a hacker. <laughs> I was trying to control the space bus from a, distant, a great distance away. Hey, guys, look, someone left money in the soda machine. Guys. <laughs> So things that we, some kind of bullet points talking about this, um, did we think, I think we're going back and forth on this, but originally I think Weinstein and I felt like the system made characters at start a little bit same-ish, but I also kind of felt the same way about HSD original as the characters were, I guess the lack of a class system kind of characters made characters feel not strongly diverse at day one. Right. And I've actually thought a little bit about that point. The, uh, moving through some of the different beta ones that we saw, which is all of two of them. But, you know, I think this one was much more successful at allowing you as a starting character to really develop down and build a bit of a class loadout for yourself, build a bit of differentiation. Anytime that you're dealing with the point system or honestly, to an extent, anytime you're dealing with a sci-fi system, you're, you're losing what D&D packages right out the gate, which is you're a fighter. Yeah. Have a fighter kit. You're a wizard. Have a wizard kit. And here's your lore. Sci-fi has always struggled with that a little bit. As well, any any modern setting does. I mean, look at us around this table. We don't really have classes. Well, Wines is an engineer. <laughs> Wines is an engineer. That that is kind of it's it's a point modern, that I'm stumbling yeah. to towards. Okay. Spot on. It's it, HSD struggles a little bit by not having a class system out the gate. It and most of the superheroes, sci-fi, modern, are really helped by having example characters or example archetypes that you can build to. And you see some of that in the lore book that came out between mm -hmm. that highlighted some of what different classes or different specialties within the megacorps look like. Yeah. As we worked through, we saw that the rules were changing a little bit, but what the last one really nailed was it gives you enough points to build a character that has some strength, that has some differentiation. Yeah. It's very unlikely that two people will build the same character with your starting kit even before you get to the point that you're going out and earning more stuff. Yeah, and one thing that we didn't see much of in first ed, but I think it's a major part of second ed, is the techniques, kind of the mini powers that really kind of let you carve something that's rather class-like out of the system. Because you can use these, um, what's the term? I've lost the term already. Yeah, we're all umming about this one. Techniques are kind of a punt. They're a good addition, but they are feats. Yeah, Top to bottom, pure and simple, they are feats. Right. Well, but they, and they, I say that they're kind they, of a punt because that's where feat bloat, power creep always comes in. So they're good. They offer a lot of flexibility, but they're kind of outside most of the other mechanics that we have. Well, they're ways of introducing something that's like a power to your character. And the basic points that your characters have, well, a lot of the splats like White Wolf would have, your race, your morphism, your... Uh, corporations, they don't really add a lot that's significantly different than the others. It's you get a single trait or a single this or a single that. And those splats don't really differentiate you too much. They're just kind of ways of distributing points in small ways. I kind of would like to see something like if you bought X or Y, you'd have a discount on future purchases in social perception or something like that. Some way of like long-term differentiating yourself. I'm going to disagree with that one. You can't just you can't. Not with the... You, you can't disagree with it. I would like it. Not not that you would like it. I'm going to disagree with the point before that. Uh -huh. Techniques have a lot of differentiation with the characters. Yeah, they do. I was uh, agreeing. When so you, why are we having this conversation? 
my character was very heavily built into the techniques, and that's where a lot of the defensive choices I was taking, that's where a lot of my points kind of diverted into from some of your other point pools and subsystems. Sure. Um, but that's also where all the stealth came in. Yeah, no, they're, and, they're, they're a solid way to unify your character, and it's a way of building something like a class into the system that does not have a class. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, the one thing I've learned about GURPS is that if you play GURPS to its bitter end in like 400-point characters, there is no differentiation at all. And you because can, of the exponential point costs. Well, be, that and that most people tend to develop their character to solve problems they've already encountered. So you are reflexively patching up your weaknesses after a certain point. You know, once you get to like the place where your character is what you visualized in your head, then you start patching over the holes. So you are wine and pointing at wines podcast. Um, wines has often said that flaws and weaknesses make the character what mm -hmm. they are. But in a long, long term game in a point based system does go away. Well, unless you have discipline and resolve to keep them. Right. But tragedy of the commons type stuff, it, it tends to fade. And this isn't a strictly point-based system, um, but I can kind of see some of the same issues going on. You don't really have the exponential point increase. The points as you work through the experience tree kind of slowly creep up, mm -hmm. which makes it a little bit more prohibitive to go deeper and deeper into any single or single tree or single dual tree as opposed to spreading out your points. But as for covering up your weaknesses, there is a lot you can do to patch up the weaknesses as you move through the trees. And those are choices that are taking away from other choices that you could be making. So for those of you that haven't been to the Kickstarter and reviewed the rules or haven't been to, been to a playtest session, the general progression structure for HSD 2.0 is um, like a series of six experience tracks where you kind of buy up your social perception, you buy up your physical oomph. And each one is associated with one of the statistics. Yeah, each one of the six tracks is associated with one of your six statistics, physical, mental, social, do or perceive. And there's a little bit of flavoring in the track. So I think that the mental trees tend to have a little bit more in the way of skills and focus and um, initiative type stuff, whereas the physical ones might have more techniques and more hit points and more dodge boost, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's some, some differentiation there depending on how you spend your points. Although, because every level of the tree, broadly speaking, gets an increase in cost, you're going to be encouraged to fill things up at a lower rate. You're going to be encouraged to fill the earlier ones as well, so nothing's going to get super high ahead, which is why I think a discount might make sense to kind of lift the curse of that a little bit. But long and the short, it's a series of six tracks you use to purchase various aspects of your characters as you go down these tracks. And it's a lot, I think, cleaner and more gamist than the nebulous money-based progression that uh, 1.0 had. Well, the critical differentiator there that you didn't really touch on is that every step that you're going down gives you two choices. Oh, yeah. So you can either take, for example, a point of movement or you could take two points of initiative. Good point. And with those spread out through six different tracks, several different layers, and far more options than you have just for six choices, that does become a bit of a puzzle if you want to go that way to yeah. put together what points you want and where you're going to get it, because you will have to make choices. You, yep. you cannot get everything you want out of the tree. That's true. If you're optimizing for like your heavy-duty tank stat bonus stuff, you're going to be losing out on skills. Mm -hmm. Good point. I forgot about those those uh, multiple choices at every single level. That That is a nice touch. Um, mechanics uh, seem pretty sound, yeah, mm -hmm. overall. Pretty 
I'm not going to say it's a simple dice system. Um, I've done some math on it to see how it balances out, and I'll post some charts at some point in time, probably when we have a more serious discussion of this in January of 2019. It's mostly straightforward. There's definitely some complexity to it, but at its root, you're rolling two dice and then adding some modifiers that usually stay pretty static. Yeah, and there's only like one modifier, too, if I remember correctly. Sometimes two for equipment. I think there's... Generally going to be two. Yeah, one yeah. one for equipment and one for base stat. Yeah, modifying stat. Yeah, it gets a little bit fuzzy when you're using perception type things versus save type things versus stat plus skill type things. The rolls feel the same. It's like stat plus blank, but there's just enough ambigu- uh, just enough differences there to make it a little bit fuzzy for me. But I have it was two a.m. <laughs> it usually drop down to one dice plus two or three stat or two or three statics. Either way, I mean. Once you have the character put together, once you know what your common modifiers are, you can pretty much make a list and know what you're working with most of the time. And as the difficulty increased or decreased relative to your character's personal skill, you'd scale up your dice size by level, which when I saw that on paper, I thought that's going to be a little confusing. But no, it really was pretty straightforward once you kind of got the rhythm of it. Yeah, it was still a little confusing, but I can see how after a couple of more sessions, it would it would become more second nature. Fall into place, yeah. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, I realize that most of the gaming world disagrees with me, but actually holding the dice in your hand and kind of making the physical choices might help as well, just the muscle memory and things like that. But I'm biased. I need paper. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the difference in in the levels of stats characters have isn't that big. Like, I, I, I tend to make big, strong characters, and my... I didn't feel like I'd have this big strength score that was really radically different from anyone from anyone else's. You have to give evidence of that by backing it up with uh, like athletics or skills that make your strength-based stuff more meaningful. Yeah, um, or the special effects that kind of bump yourself up one level or down one level. Yeah, but but if you imagine your character is, I want to be really smart but really weak, or vice versa, there's a limit to how far you can go with that because of the way stats are acquired. It's probably worth pointing out too, um, and this is a bullet point I had later on, but this is a sci-fi game and your gear is as important as it is in like D&D 4.0. Yeah. And if you had the money to invest, well, I spent a lot of my money on a laptop with Genshi Cool programs. Uh-huh. I could make things blow up from a distance. It was great. But I didn't buy armor. I couldn't have used armor if I bought it. And I didn't buy heavy weapons. And I didn't buy a melee sword. So there's a lot of damage and damage soakability that you can purchase in gear that is part of your choices as well. Yeah. There's also a little bit of what, what are you comparing it to? Because if you're comparing it to, oh, for example, 4th Ed... About mid-range when the characters are actually developed, your wizard over here might be a multi-planetary super genius while the fighter has an intelligence of, say, five. <laughs> but the fighter could, you know, in canon lift, oh, a tank with a pickup truck on top of it <laughs> while the poor little wizard is, like, struggling to carry two sticks at the same time. Yeah. yeah. D&D may have spoiled adjust, us a bit. Just adjusted our normal a little bit. Or White Wolf, even that, worse. Yes. That, that's true. And again, in a sci-fi world where it's kind of more on the smarts of characters and also certainly more on the equipment of characters, that it makes sense that the, that your genetic differences aren't that big. On the other, other, other hand, a world where there are micro mice and macro elephants, there should be a huge difference there. But true. Uh, but that was reflected in uh, endurance and dodgeability and things like that as yeah. well. Yeah. 
But, but, but no system is going to actually reflect the fact that anyone could step on the mouse and kill it because no one wants to do that. So I, I understand that True. certain concessions to playability must be made. Well, at yeah. They didn't make a bunch of changes to your actual attributes, be it body or whatever. Um, but if I remember right, they made fairly significant changes, uh, the morphisms that you're talking about, to how heavy of a hit you could take. So your, your def defensive sliders yeah, your and side, how many hits you could take. Your size increases and that adds some modifiers here and there. Uh -huh. And of course, we were dealing with characters that were basically, let's just say, level three characters at this point. We had a base stat distribution of like two across the board, which is kind of the recommended build. And most of us did not deviate significantly from that because we didn't really have the points to. If you spent all your points, you would have got to level three on a stat uh -huh. and only one stat and you would have been crippled somewhere else. So really, we were all kind of orbiting two at that point, And we hadn't gotten to the point where we'd have like many threes or fours on our characters at, yet. I think you could get one comfortable three. Yeah. If I remember right. Yeah. Personally, uh, I, I guess that kind of makes sense. Where in, in a world where tigers don't start off with their claws or their night, night vision, you have to spend some time and get surgeries to get those. In a world where tigers don't start out with night vision. Right, right. <laughs> the, it, it takes time. There's precedent for the notion that you have to grow into your genetic heritage. Yeah. <laughs> you have to get all the little pieces from the back of the coffee mugs. <laughs> Piece, I didn't say I screwed it all up. The little little <laughs> the little things you tear away from the back of the paper coffee cups in the games that Marsco used to put on there. Okay. Coffee cup okay. giveaways. You had to get all the game tokens off your soda cups. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> I just really <laughs> language. 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 Um, there are no language rules in HSD <laughs> or our table. Uh, character generation. I feel like this is a place that the game has gotten dinged a few times for. It was complex. We are generally agreeing on that. It was very complex. I don't necessarily know that it was difficult. The way that the game walks you through within the rules, it's pretty straightforward as to what you're picking. Yeah. But it is, there are enough options right out the mm -hmm. gate that if you're just going to pick the options that sound pretty cool, you're going to come out pretty well. Yeah. You're, you're going to have some weaknesses. You're going to have some places that um, maybe you could have optimized better, but whatever. You're, you're pretty Pretty solid character. Yeah, kind of reminding me of fourth four point It's hard to build a character that's really bad if you follow the like the basic basic default build. Right. It's also hard to really optimize the character though because there are a lot of different options and a lot of different trade offs and a yeah. lot of different balances that you have to account for. So, I think some people will find that very interesting and find that a very interesting challenge. Some people will have their eyes glaze over a little bit, but if they push through it the way that the game presents it, I think it will get to a character that they like pretty quickly. So you had your initial kind of stat, stat outlay where you'd have, actually, you didn't really have a stat outlay at first. You picked your basic morphism breed corporation type things, and then you got a huge pile of freebie points, which you're probably going to spend most of it on buying like up to two and everything. And that'll give you like 70 freebie points to distribute here and there. And then all of those freebie points give you opportunities to purchase other things. There's kind of, you're buying into different pools to purchase. And then there's a pool of customization points on top of that and then it's likely that you would have gotten up to um, like the first landmark at start so the option the assumption is you okay so every like 100 xp or so you get to a landmark and that's just kind of the level advancement sort of thing in tier upgrade and it's assumed that in your standard character build you're at landmark number one but it'll give you some chance to play hsd babies if you don't want to do that or whatever so you've got the three points from the landmark and then you might have also opted into a couple other free-floating pools as well 
you know, we were playing with the playtest rules, which were not very graphical. And I think a two page flow diagram would have made everything much cleaner. Oh, yeah, that would have made it much, much easier, yeah. which is presumably in the works. Yeah, we started a little bit ahead, at least at the point that we played the balance that they were looking at would start you with, say, 210 points. And the first landmark was at 250 with a rough um, suggestion of about 15 experience per play session. So an actual starting character would set you up with about two or three games before you hit your first landmark. Well, yes, what you're saying has some truth to it. We had more of the initial outlay points, but... We started higher. We, well, we did start higher, but we didn't start with any more like units of points. We ha- I mean, we have more points to start out with, but we didn't open up any new pools or anything like that because we're at the first landmark. Right. But we did start with enough experience to hit that first landmark. And but most the, players, they're starting just... No, that's the default assumption of the game is you're at landmark one. So we had more points to play with, but the amount of complexification was not hugely different. Well, no, because you have options at every level. So there was that complexity as well. Anyway, neither here nor there. <laughs> The game would benefit from having a flowchart, and I suspect we can look forward to seeing that when the mm-hmm. game is not a series of Word documents in PDF form. Well, according to my don't. rule book on page 437... Don't. Ashtar, 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 Ashtar. Don't ever. <laughs> I hate that noise. So is it too soon for new edition? I think that's the question every gamer asks when they have to cough up for. I was going to say pony up, but I feel that might be inappropriate. Well, I, I think as long as the edition is making actual changes and improvements, mm-hmm. then it's always time for it. So, yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that this does offer some some real improvements over 1.0. Yeah, I agree with that. I think 2.0 is fundamentally a more fun game to play, uh, but the differences are so wide that version one and version two can live in parallel. I don't know if Sev necessarily wants to support them both at the same time. I'm thinking no there. Uh, but, he's supporting uh, the color from the first one, but the rules themselves, no. Major Kickstarter goals are to reprint the various contracts in 2.0 friendly format. But if you liked the more crunchy list and table based first edition i mean it's not going anywhere yeah and while we did well i did uh, invest in the hardbound books early on uh, the games have been available for very cheap for a long time because most players that didn't get any additional kickstarter would not have a hardbound book they would buy the pdfs which were selling for like three or four dollars each um really it's a very generous low price mm-hmm. so so far as dollar outlays go the majority of players probably don't have the kind of credit card sting that us early adopters would that's good. That's fine. Or that those of us coming from other systems. <laughs> oh, come on. Or, or Games Workshop. <laughs> the last GW rule book I bought was like 70 bucks. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I'll pay it. But wow, that's a hardcover book. Yeah. So I just bought Werewolf the Apocalypse 20th Anniversary Kickstarter Edition, which is a reprint of the first, well, a re-edition of the best ideas from the first three editions of Werewolf the Apocalypse. With all the errors still left in. Yes. And new errors <laughs> added, actually. But it is different from the fourth hardbound bearing the phrase werewolf from white wolf which was werewolf the forsaken which is a totally different game right so it goes back to third edition now that i've done that they've released werewolf fourth edition no fifth edition not counting d20 edition which is its own thing coming soon and i'm like going to cry over this <laughs> it's just gonna make me sad we're not gonna play it unless it's got like really really hot werewolves on the front cover oh, it will you know it will i know it will Tech toys as character power source, as character, like, attribute. Actually, this, let me back up real quick. I really <laughs> like... Sorry, the, 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 
the, the backgrounds, like what, where, where, oh, the where the was from. Yeah, histories. Yeah. Where your character's from is kind of like a feat or like a, a minor power. Yeah. Because th- th- there's some complexity to that. It's not just, you know, oh, you're from a grotto. You get plus two to some skill. It's yeah. like, no, it's an ability that anybody not from a grotto won't have. And, and they're not small powers. And, and those were weird. Those were more, those were almost more subclasses than just minor abilities. Right, yeah. right, right. They were yeah. little templates in like D&D 5th edition where it's a major lens on your character. And, and it's one that powers up as your character goes up in level yeah. and, and has more effect as the game goes on. And I like that. I like that. That's cool. That helps differentiate the characters. Yes. And background story in the convenient kit. That's kind of what alignment was always good for is it kind of gave you some big options to paint on mm-hmm. and and also that with the positive and negative concept yeah as your character embraces celebrity background or is he sulky about it right is, is your character a prime example of this is the cream of the crop of, of what somebody growing up in a grotto or is this somebody who left as soon as they could and that's what they remember resents it ever since that way you can have two people with the same background who could have different different takes and different abilities as a result of those takes Mm -hmm. mechanically that also supported the backgrounds because generally the positive would have the growing power the different levels of background advancements that were coming with the landmarks but they were very specific and they were very rigid like they they would not give you very much flexibility at the different levels the negative one had like a huge throwdown but the negative one was just okay now you just have a power it's probably only useful once a session but it's just you just throw that out whenever you want it's pretty universally um, useful to a lot of different things. Yeah. So you can really, your character can embrace the background, but you as the player can also really embrace the background to take the powers to go with it. Or you can go with that background to kind of make it your own and just take the power that you can use whenever. So yeah, those are, those are cool. Neat idea. So one of the things I, I strongly disliked about First Ed was that character creation was tied to your money pools. If you had dollars, you basically had experience points. They were nearly interchangeable. And... I feel like there's a bit of that in second ed because the technology gave you such large like ideas and powers and opportunities. You really technology is very important and it's endemic in any sci-fi game. Mm-hmm. I don't really know where I was going with that paragraph. It is still in there. If you, t- if you had taken a look at the neuroplex, the mm-hmm. changes to the neuroplex will now allow you to purchase uh, proficiency points up to a certain cap, mm-hmm. but they will also allow you to purchase techniques. So Mm -hmm. the feats that we were talking about earlier that gave you all sorts of training advantages, those are now um, you can funnel cash into to improve. But on the third hand, there is not a finance skill or stat. I mean, you can buy like 500 gold pieces occasionally with experience points, but it's not something that you're going to invest in once and then like have this big discrepancy for the rest of your character's life cycles. Yeah. You can play a poor character and still have as many opportunities for this as a rich character. Every so often within the character building, you can cash out certain points to get one-time credit drops, mm-hmm. but it's not something that's going to build upon itself and make mm-hmm. all of your earning potential get higher for the rest of your life. Uh, the notoriety trait kind of does that, though. Notoriety is a very funky trait. You buy it every... When you when you buy it, it's like investing in a future payout of random. Mm-hmm. So it's kind yeah, of a way. I bought a bunch of that too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a dilettante power. You kind of spread things out at the cost of having less oomph every level. Until eh. you hit those landmarks when you start gain bonuses that you can't get anywhere else. Right, but those bonuses cannot stack very deeply. So it's it's a spread thin merit, and that's fine. It's, it's not a bad idea. It's just a little challenging, and it's another pool of points. I didn't completely max it out, but... I went very heavily into notoriety for the landmark that we were at, and I think that is something that I would continue to invest in. For, for the character I was playing, it was very useful. 
And it does give you a couple of things that you can't get anywhere else, such as the special allowances for weapons and armor or special allowances for some of the cool tech toys you have. Those are powers that you just don't find anywhere else in the character builder. Uh, So looking briefly at the Kickstarter, uh, first off, I think everybody needs to do something you might not have done in a Kickstarter before and press play on that video because I got to have a sneak preview of this about two months ago and I've been kind of biting my lips about it ever since because I was ordered not to say anything about it, but it's got some good CGI on it. You get a nice shot of slow motion tar butt. If you're into tar butt, it's there for you. The like Mars Co Pulse IRPF fleet going into action for what's going to be the War of the Spire, strongly hinted at. So go and see it. It's not a bad piece of CGI. The uh, got some good furry art in it as well. Um, so that's the video. Totally worth a play. There's lots of tutorial videos throughout, scattered throughout the Kickstarter itself. Unlike virtually all of Sev's other Kickstarters, this one is probably the least gadget happy, which is, you know, plus and minus. When I was consulting on Kickstarters back in the day, I'd kind of steer people away from putting too many toys in there. But people do like them. And this is like the least toy intensive Kickstarter there is. You're basically investing in PDFs and things at the higher levels. And unfortunately, the get your character on the back cover of the book offerings, opportunities, the get your character in the book, those are all those went day one or day two. Sad, sad. And there weren't that many of them to begin with. People like their characters. <laughs> they do. Let's go. We don't need that many more customized dice anyways. I, I don't. What? I know. I, I make those words that don't actually mean anything to Madden. gamers, but <laughs> you're speaking you're speaking madness, sir. It doesn't parse. Um, stretch goals. There are um, okay. Stretch goals. Uh, two ones kind of jumped out at me. Uh, some of the earlier stretch goals were a new contract, a new um, a reprint of the existing contracts in 2.0. I gotta say, I've never really been a big fan of contracts or modules or anything like that. They're good for world color, but it's you know the amount of material I draw from them is like three paragraphs. That's me, though. Other people might find that, find have a different experience of that sort of thing. We are a little bit spoiled by having a long-term game group and a tabletop game. And a glut of GMs. <laughs> yeah. But the, so the Kickstarter right now is at $23,000. Again, this is probably kind of a lowball uh, print-on-demand style Kickstarter anyway. Uh, so it's at 23000 right now, which is 5000 over its, its done point. A stretch goal I found particularly interesting at 35000 was the adversary resource. So that's a game expansion that once you get to that point, it's going to be on the, I guess its release date is going to be set in stone. I rather think he'll publish it eventually anyway, but maybe sooner at that point. And at 40000 I think, there was the um, reader content resource uh, for providing your own contracts. So that's really cool. I don't expect that anybody at this table is going to necessarily participate in that because we're not really module people. I may be wrong on this count entirely, but it's going to be fun to be able to review some of the new source material and maybe like wheedle and wine until we get a sneak preview of it so we can leak that information out there. There may be a huge Titanic flood of user material. I don't know. It'll be fun to see. So it's worth a few moments to look at the uh, Kickstarter as it currently stands. The Kickstarter has reached the $35,000 mark with about 10 days left on the clock. A little more than that, a little less than that. And the new stretch goals that have been released are a new novel, a new contract, a huge package of crazy swag that uh, I don't even know. I think it's like a garage sale. Anyway, so the Kickstarter's been expanded somewhat. If you haven't pledged, go and take a look at it. Thanks. Back to our regularly scheduled other 
version of me. So anyway, that's the, the Kickstarter and some of our initial thoughts on 2.0. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, but you can probably just Google for Iksun Rakonis Kickstarter and, and go straight to it. Go now. Pledge high. Yes. Mm-hmm. We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So as promised, this episode is going to revolve mostly around the concept of family this is kind of a follow-up to the three-episode arc about Marsco itself, because I want to follow up each one with kind of something that's intentionally relevant, and Marsco is the center of culture for the HSD universe and for Soul. So let's talk about family in this universe. One might even call this episode family-friendly. They'd probably be wrong. Probably mostly right. Yeah, well, <laughs> family-friendly, but inordinately tedious for some members. So what do we know about family? Most of the lens on family and soul was through the color text at the back of Core Extended, where we have uh, little Elsie's journey of discovery, where she learns that the world is much, much darker than she and probably we had thought at the time. It was kind of a bridge into a more dystopian world from the original Core rulebook's generally positive tone. Uh, it was not a specifically Marsco lens. It was kind of generic, but also probably leaning more heavily on TTI because that was her experience. But I think we can kind of draw universals from it. I don't know. Um, and there was actually not a lot of material there. It mostly concentrated on kind of world tone more than uh, specifics of growing up as a badger or whatever. More family kind of turned up in the book about cogs where we learn about growing up as a cog as opposed to or in parallel to growing up as a vector. Pretty much what we have now, but with more technology and more options. Elsie also went fairly deep into the topic of education, and I think the uh, Sound and Silence book does as well, talking about uh, neuroplexing and the infancy bypass concept, where every every infant can presumably spend the first chronologically six to eight months of their lives, physically one to two years of their lives, in uh, a forced growth slash neuroplex education training environment. Mm -hmm. It's a convenience to the parents and a valuable service offered by their benevolent corporate overlords to uh, help keep them useful and on the field as opposed to dealing with squalling infants. Yeah, that. Um, And I think that's kind of where we need to start with the discussion of what family is like in this world, because that's that's the starting point. I guess one question is how consistent are the the tapes that are fed into infants from place to place? I mean, that could have a really real effect on on a population if everyone is fed the corporation prescribed outlook slash background. Yeah. yeah. Not, not that you're programming people, but you can, by, by what you teach them, you can aim them in a certain direction. Well, let's be clear. You're programming people. Well, yes. <laughs> you, you really are. I think that's kind of one of the major plot elements of our Sunday campaign. I've been kind of thinking that is that we've got this data dump from Genesis, the educational company, and it's got some dark secrets in there somewhere. We know it does. And let's also be clear, the mega corporations absolutely have a hand in what goes into their population. That that includes the training tapes. It does and it doesn't. I mean, every, every megacorp makes everything. I think that we can just kind of assume that, except maybe IRPF. But Marsco is the specialist in education and broadcasting as well. And they are the underpinning of really all technology. So it may be that things are fairly standard along a Marsco message, particularly in the more, I guess, 
I don't want to say populist, that's the wrong word, but not isolationist corporations. Like I think you're going to get a different spin in Spyglass, TTI, and Progenitus than you might in Pulse and AR and um, ASR. Sure, you, surely you don't mean the more civilized mega corporations. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> um, sir, I'm a Mars Co. dog all the way, <laughs> except for the Pulse thing. But no, I do. I, I think that we can assume that for the vast majority of vectors, the experience of childhood is going to be at least the tanks are going to be fairly similar. I would assume nothing, nothing of the sort, nothing in general. Okay. Well, <laughs> Marsco owns the biggest private educational corporation out there. We can say that as a fact. At least in first edition, there were no other named minicorps. So <laughs> Genesis true. was it for a while. A large portion of, I mean, Marsco is the generic assumption for most people's early childhood. I think if you looked at most of our character sheets, you'd see Marsco slash blank uh, because we want to take advantage of that pool of free miscellaneous points there. I think that there's definitely going to be a core curriculum, if you will, that that is generally agreed on. Every vector really needs to be raised up on. Yeah. That's going to be a certain amount of just seeing eye to eye on certain issues and basically core civilization if you will but in a system in a lore base where the cities the societies the rules that you function under the social organizations everything else is completely dependent upon where you are at any given time and what corporation owns the environment that you're in i don't have any real faith that there's a single thread of training that they train everybody up on well i think well i am largely to blame to blame for this, we are deviating a little bit because the concept for the episode is family and not necessarily education, but they do go kind of hand in hand in places. I think one of the reasons to look at the infancy bypass tanks is to say what they represent about values. I guess value is a loaded word itself, because if you are a low ranking peon employee, how much of your child's infancy are you going to give to these tanks? Uh, to do the math, every like month a child spends in these things is two years of biological, is, no, is two months of of biological growth. So if you're spending like six months in there, you grow a year. I think it's around that. Maybe it may be like two, a two to three ratio. Elsie says that children that spend too much of their time in there. And I think she mentions like two years max are going to be quote overbaked unquote. And they're going to be kind of bonkers and not really understand a lot of stuff in the world. They know things, but they don't piece them together very well and they'll make stupid decisions and be very tragic figures later on in life. I want to circle back to this when we get to Pulse for a number of reasons. But if you are valuable to your employers, they will provide services like this. If you are very valuable to your employers, they won't provide services like this. <laughs> There's kind of a bell curve in terms of value because for people that don't have a lot of corporate support in their lives, they're going to raise their children maybe with very little infancy bypass. They'll have more time where the kid's kind of a squalling lump and and let I don't know where they're quite going with that. Um, but a major perk for employees is getting rid of those troublesome ages up to like one or so where the kid's not very rewarding, where it just screams a lot and kind of take them up to where they're starting to crawl and interact with the world. And that's that's a perk. But the more valuable your time is to the corporation, the more you're going to be encouraged to take that perk. Up to a point. And aside to listeners, none of your hosts are parents, in case it was not bleedingly obvious. <laughs> this is true. I suppose at some point in time, I'm going to face those remarks with regard. <laughs> so, researching for this episode a little bit, I looked at some of the guerrilla studies about nurturing and socialization. 
And for the average vector, they're going to be losing the first year and a half of their lives to a web of fake memories and um, forced growth with like retroactive gene technology, gene technology and such like. That's time when they're not nursing or cuddling or being socially coddled or whatever. That is time away from their lives. And that creates very distant people. Well, they, they might. That depends entirely on how good their VR systems are. Well, so right. one one thing we know, like fact, is that Vector Society is not good on mental health. That that that's not their strong suit. They don't do therapy very well. They throw pills at problems rather than solving them. And I don't think we can necessarily assume, as you said, don't assume anything. But we can't assume this is a solved problem necessarily. I'm going to rephrase that okay. slightly. Okay. Vector Society is not very good at mental wellness. Yes. They don't proactively do a lot of fixes or take a lot of care. But when things break, when things cause problems, when things consistently become a problem that drains resources or does not meet the estimated revenue flow, these are problems that become fixed. So if that problem is that children are not getting nurtured enough and you're raising a generation of psychopaths, the mega corporations are going to fix that for the next generation of children that they push through the VR machines. Uh, psychopaths is probably going to be a little strong, but um, we might be raising a world where people are a little bit colder and a little bit more dependent on machines and less dependent on a well-developed connected culture. And I'm not sure that's entirely non-desirable for Marsco in particular, which wants a predictable world. I wish I could remember the name of the Japanese cultural phenomenon of people that just kind of stay at home forever. Yeah. Because uh, I, I can't remember what it's called. That world I can, word I can never quite remember. Um, anyway, I don't necessarily think that a, a cold and distant world is unappealing to Marsco, which values predictability above almost anything else. It, this is a slider for your campaign, though, and something you can push either way. And I imagine that it's a pendulum that's gone either way as well over the course of uh, Soul's existence. There's definitely advantages in having a population that thinks of their corporation as their family more so than their actual birth family. Yeah. Um, but I think that questions about um, the forced growth tanks and uh, being of value to your corporation are going to be very different in a Pulse environment as opposed to um, ASR or any other environment, really, because Pulse is weird and broken in many ways. Still my favorite corporation, but a deeply messed up one. Best broken, I think you mean. We talked a little about this in the holiday episode, but there's probably a strong like month to month, year to year infrastructure in the Marsco calendar of like holidays and faux holidays and take your dog to work days and such like um, that people are going to participate in and probably a wealth of uh, free floating entertainment options, um, things to do in your environment. I'm so confused by take your dog to work day. <laughs> I really don't know how to take that. You never take me anywhere. That's true. Elsie talks a little bit about uh, growing up with a uh, forced flow, no, flow form um, water sculpture in her front yard or in her uh, little megaplex where her mother, the seal, I think, otter, would go and play. And um, it's kind of, one imagines a very interactive environment, uh, particularly in ASR and the other more science-y corporations. So I think growing up in this world in HSD, you could probably have a lot of just opportunities to really become an individual, which you... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going in a circle here. I don't know where I'm going with that paragraph. To go to space camp. 
Yeah, yeah. If you have the money for it, at least. And we we really see the world mostly from the like the haves side. I think more than anything else, which is part of being a PC. Ashtar's frowning at me now. When you look at some of the costs for rent, I don't know if I would necessarily classify the PCs as basically being the haves. It it implies that the say the monthly throughput for most people is a fair bit more than most of the PCs would just start with at level one or however you want to plant it. Yeah, I did feel pretty poor physically at level one, but I think the promise of these mostly post-scarcity world is where most PCs have their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And there's implications of struggling, but I don't think we see them very often, except like when, when the book deliberately opens a crack, like Elsie's World or something like that. Well, and that is counterbalanced by the fact that for most vectors, they may have a lot more cash flow, but that cash flow is all at the company store. So it's not like they can just redirect that at the drop of a hat. And something I had almost not put in, had not put into my notes was a very offhand mention that Elsie makes of um, families and the poverty level. Um, the poorer you are, you're not going to have kids. That's just not going to be an option. They'll put something in your cornflakes or something that stops that from happening. So maybe most people are born over the poverty level. Maybe that's most people's ex- shared experience because of uh, Mars goes like built-in quality controls. Don't you be getting any enforced sterilization in my utopia? You know, just in your cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> Except in a grotto, of course, where which will have its own rules. Yeah, yeah. And will have its own... Who knows what the standards of poverty or wealth are? They're smaller civilizations. And um, yeah, that's they really have an entirely different concept of wealth entirely if indeed there is one at all or or child rearing yeah sometimes um non-sentient creatures will take care of your children for you or just send all the kids into the maintenance tunnels tell tell them if if they break more than they fix then they'll be forced to live in the areas with bad life support Uh, i don't think we're talking about grottos anymore sir (laughs) talking about a hyena grotto (laughs) maybe (laughs) not a cannon grotto Anyway, enough about generalizations. Um, I'd like to look at the way the uh, I'd like to look at the way the megacorps themselves handle the concept of family. Some of this is going to be inferred a little bit. Some of this is read out of very few lines in um, Song and Silence. Some of this is developed over conversations on the channel. Uh, it's worth pointing out that there's only shreds of this sort of thing in the source material at all, and I think that historically, the sort of like down to earth side of things is things I've not been able to find in the rule books. Like there's not much on religion. There's not much on holidays. There's not much on culture. Um, you kind of had to infer it. There's a lot on things to do and things to explore and things to see, but this, this very nitty gritty stuff is not something that the rule books focus very closely on. And there's a lot of stuff in the rule books. They're many pages long, so I'm not faulting them for that. But overall, I think several times I've come down to the kind of sanitized feel of the rule books. And I think this is one more place where that kind of manifests. Part of that also comes from the fact that if you're, if as a PC, your character has a wife or a husband back home, your GM's going to kill him sooner or later. True. <laughs> oh, oh no, my third cousin twice removed. <laughs> but that, that doesn't mean you can't give them a write-up. <laughs> you know, I compare, compare to like uh, some of the White Wolf books that really dwell very heavily on the concept of culture and every rules light. I think that the balance on this is towards the mechanical and away from the society building side of things. It's a solar system they're building out, so... Maybe that's not a surprise. Uh, Progenitus. Why am I starting with Progenitus? Because I lost my book for a few weeks, and then I picked it up at Progenitus. <laughs> what we know about Progenitus is that they are, more than any other corporation, very heavily involved in the lives of their citizens. That they um, will 
reward you for healthy behavior, subtly punish you for compromising your values of health and education and adherence to company norms. So thinking this through and you know, kind of consulting with Seb as well, we're dealing with a corporation that probably has a lot of communal living and kind of group raised together teaching environments. The kids are going to be raised as a village rather than as solitaries more than more than is not. You must achieve X rank and then you will get one child ticket you may redeem. <laughs> And interestingly, one of the like perks of being a high-ranking person in progenitus land is a certain level of perceived privacy. But even so, you're going to have like your maid or your helpmate is going to be a progenitus employee who's maybe there to watch you as well. So as a person growing up progenitus, you're not going to have a sense, a strong sense of privacy. And there'll be the sense that the corporation is always watching you, hopefully benevolently, but it's always there. You cannot escape progenitus's watch. I mean, Marsco, yeah, they're always watching you as well, but you can spend some time unaware of that. Not, not so here. Low ranking progenitus employees are going to have more communal spaces, um, less space to themselves. And even those areas are going to be kind of limited as well. So progenitus, it's really going to be kind of the village coming together to raise you. That's going to be your background. You work for the good of the organization, for the good of the group. Yeah. I do wonder if at some point in time, your loss of privileges can end up with the loss of children, whether your cubs are likely to be repossessed in a progenitus world more so than in any other area. Child protective services might be quite strong there for people that seriously violate the even ethical lines in progenitus land. If you start speaking ill of the company, if you express uh, TTI tendencies. <laughs> Indivi individual elements that grow malignant and harm the greater whole get cut away. Yes, but uh, sometimes there'll be screaming and tears involved in this. This is the nature of surgery. <laughs> Another place where I think progenitus and family interact is, um, again, we have a very communal living. More so than most corporations, progenitus employees abroad will live in progenitus enclaves. So kind of like a mega church or a little ghetto or something like that, you're going to go and live progenitus over there as opposed to over here. So wherever you are, you're going to be enfolded by this loving global village, but you're not going to escape the village. Progenitus is not a cult. <laughs> but you were dressed as one. <laughs> anyway, I think that you could easily be, if you are struggling or as a PC might be prone to a certain level of rebellion and anti-authoritarianism, was that a word? anti-authoritarianism. I think that your status as a member of the progenitus family and your own family's like orbit around you could be very easily disrupted by, by the business, by the, the corp. Your life as a citizen, as a family member, may be more defined by progenitus than in any other corporation and maybe more likely to be disrupted or controlled in not so subtle ways. So you might have memories of your parents being disciplined for attitudes they had from their previous corporations and that might involve some time apart with a loving uncle or something like that in a lovely white coat <laughs> continuing with progenitus as somewhat religious overtones which you can't really deny there there is a certain amount of pressure release within though that it does kind of have the concept of a missionary or a outreach program that lets some of the progenitus employees experience outside the group and then come back and fold back into the fold. So when you're building a background with progenitus, whether complete background or adopted background, there are certainly good explanations for why a character might be out and about and not 
completely within lockstep of the Progenitus Greater Corp. Although the time you spend away from uh, Mother Corporation does impact your standing within the corporation, so there's always trade-offs. It's a juggling act. Progenitus is really micro, <laughs> and <laughs> and I think that's 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 going to show in your character's background, possibly. Let's skip over to IRPF, just because it's going to be short. IRPF and family is not an intersection that's very strong. I could almost stop there. <laughs> More than any other corporation, IRPF citizens are IRPF employees. And it's not a corporation with a lot of depth to it in terms of structure and hierarchy. IRPF is a pretty much a service provider. And so you're going to be working for the police force. The only likely scenario where you'd have a character with a strong IRPF background that wasn't just hopping from world to world would be uh, if your mother or father or both were like the hometown cop model of IRPF employee, where you have time to ingratiate yourself with a society with a long-term uh, like neighborhood beat sort of thing. Then you might have someone that could grow up IRPF-ish, but they're not going to be as much a f product of their local environment and the corporations that IRPF overlaps with as the entering police force itself. I, I assume that, like, even on the ships, higher status people can be afforded such luxuries as perhaps having their family as along. Yeah, you can. You it's, can. it's not as crazy as it'd be in in the modern world, I suspect, because you're you're always closer to home. You're you're always tied into the network almost. Yeah, what you're saying is probably fairly true, but. The assumption we have, or the picture we have of most IRPF ships, and most IRPF is on ships, that's mm -hmm. where they live, is that they're really very business across the board. Mm -hmm. um, the social areas still have this constant aura of work hum to them, and that's part of the, part of the um, corporation's deliberate image of itself. So it's, it's not... It's not going to be something that's encouraged, right? Particularly for the rank and file. Because I'm thinking of that of the movie we saw recently, Outland, where we see just that the the, the top ranking federal marshal ha having his family on the mining station briefly, who who bails almost immediately as they realize, <laughs> yes, this, this stinks. <laughs> yes, uh, linked to Outland in the show notes. That's a fun one. Uh, Westerns in space. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't sound like it's a place that really lends itself to long-term family uh, relationships. Although I think we have that book series, the um, points of points of departure, yeah. lines of departure, uh, the military space thing where we have um, kind of a couple developing a relationship in a military hierarchy where one's Navy and one's uh, Marine slash ground troop. And maybe somehow how that might structure itself. Yeah. They never have kids, but we haven't gotten to book seven yet. I also think of, I don't know that many detail, details of it, but 20th century, 21st century Earth, um, where you have housing for families, for, for military families. I mean, I think we've known some people who have been in that, that situation, whereas even if the family is not being shipped around all the time, they are within the fold of the military. And again, we, we know people who have grown up military brats, that really affects them, even though they've never been spent time on a carrier or a ship or anything like that. Yeah. And you could legit base that as a model for your character's background. But again, something that's not really supported by the canon in any meaningful way. I mean, it's a reasonable inference. Yeah. But IRPF does not have true corp towns. So there's very few areas that are governed entirely by IRPF on planet side. But maybe there's a suburb. We don't know. Right. I mean, as the police slash military, I mean, they kind of, I assume frequently they develop a place as a group of outsiders. And so they might, there's, there's a variety of reasons why you might want to group together and not just be, ah, well, I'll just get this apartment in the middle of nowhere. They're like cops, right? Right. 
And there's, but there's a suggestion that IRPF, when they're like on a planet side beat, uh-huh. they actually become part of the community more than anything else. And so I think you're going to be dealing with a hybrid of IRPF and local culture when you have um, like a long deployment on a planet side. Right. So Th- that needn't contradict what I what I'm suggesting. Okay. Because the well, again, like p- police, but police are definitely part of the community that they're in. While they definitely have an existence as a separate group in that. Yeah, it's like police versus military. These are different concepts. The military life is about hopping from planet to planet, about not strong roots, about uh-huh. um, it's where you're going to be like never sleeping in the same place for like a full six months at a time. Police, you're going to be part of your local community, more tied there. And those are different sides of IRPF. Although that, that, that's a view of the military. The mil- another view of the military is people who go in and occupy a region for decades true um that's that would be i mean they're, they're not police but that's probably a, a much more police-like experience so i i feel like you could say that a lot of your character background as an irpf family person might be about ties between the local community and kind of breaking them over time or how the the tensions there yeah i mean it, it, it's complex be, being part of but not part of at the same time if you're playing the role of police the idea is you shouldn't be involved in people's little personal problems. You're supposed to be in the impartial force, uh, outside force. So, so the, the, the dual role of somebody... Anyways, I'm just repeating myself. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying, though? The, yeah. You're, you're involved enough that you have empathy and understanding, but not so involved that you're not a trustworthy judge. Um, I guess I'll go to Pulse now because they're on the page that I'm looking at right now. Pulse, Pulse, Pulse. I do like Pulse. <laughs> um, and I think that across all of Seoul, I think you could say that no one is as bad for kids as and families as Pulse is. Pulse breaks families. It destroys them. This is in canon. <laughs> Are your kids not eating enough sugar, sugar and watching enough television? <laughs> First off, Pulse is extraordinarily competitive. And in many, many cases, both sides of the family cannot sustain that level of crazy. So... A split family, like split corporation family is going to be pulled pretty far. And the second one person starts to drop out of the rat race or starts to wear out, they're going to start feeling the tension. Pulse breeds broken families. This is their legacy. It's also the reason why Pulse is one of the smallest corporations. It's certainly the smallest of the established corporations because no one can live like that for long. I'm not hearing anything that contradicts Hyena family values. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they don't eat their young quite as much, but only because there isn't a young eating contest. You just don't eat their young. Other people's young, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so just on the ground, you're going to have m- more single parents, more stressed out homes, more mom and dad feuds than you would in most other corporations. That's just kind of low level stress. Higher level stress, there's fierce competition to be as pulse as you can be, to be the top of the, the heap, to be the best at the work. Whatever you do, you need to be number one at it. And I think that's going to create a situation where you have people that are willing to sacrifice more of their lives and more of their children's lives to the corporation. So um, first off, I think you're going to run the risk of people being overbaked in the growth tanks more often than not in Pulse or more often than in many other corporations in Pulse, simply because that's a way of buying time to advance in the corporate ladder. On Terra, you have people sacrifice the ability to have children at all to the corporate gods. And I think it's going to be kind of like that. Um, this is, I, I imagine this will not be 
This will be more common in Pulse than in many other corporations. The the story of the person being raised by the badass monk, for example, be possibly a, a reasonable parallel? I guess you could go there, but uh, that's pretty fantasy at that point um, because the monk would have time to raise you is, uh, is, is kind of a question mark. Remember the story of Jodorowsky? The guy that first tried to make the Dune movie? No. He decided to cast his, his own child as Paul Atreides. And so he started raising his kid the way he, Paul Atreides should have, taking him out of school and having him taught by a weapons master you can't every see, day. You can't see my eyebrows going up, but they're, they're really going up right now. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Isn't that Pulse? Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. Wow. The uh, the film reference that came to my mind, this isn't really a film, but what is what is that woman that did the Wolfram? What was her name? The the frizzy haired female comedian. Michelle Wolf? Maybe Michelle Wolf. She was with her kind of political comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite bits from there, she was talking about, I think, gays adopting Uh and uh, that they were being dissuaded from having children in special events or something like that. And I forget the exact context of the joke, but. It was uh, something like, they will rue the day they cast Everett Grace Walters as angel number four. Now pass me those red glitter peacock feathers. <laughs> Which that, yep. that, that, that sounds like Pulse parent to me, at least Pulse housewife type parent. <laughs> sure, totally sure. going above and beyond totally, to... Uh, totally Joan Bonet. Yeah, or the, uh, the new Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie where the, the scary blonde woman and her scary blonde daughter came in perfect right. unison wearing the same jumpsuits. Yeah, she, she was scary. Yeah. One, one kind of interesting idea about Pulse might be the uh, freely available body modification and the encouragement to be yourself as hard as you can be. You might end up with, like, in on Earth, people, I understand, would get occasional piercings to show off that they were not their parents. Sure. And rebel against family values. God knows what you could have in Pulse. I mean, you could go kind of totally crazy there. Just if you got mom's credit card for a few days, no telling what appendages you might come back with. Right. You just use Pulse and... Going totally crazy in the same sentence with a straight face. I know. Look at my <laughs> eyebrows, dude. Wait, I don't have eyebrows. <laughs> Some sci-fi story having an account of a, a punk group. Main characters talking to one of the punks and saying, that's a really unusual place to put genitals. <laughs> that would be Mall World again. <laughs> Another concept from growing up in Pulse is the, uh, the call signs, the names, um, kind of the symbolic commitment of carving your own identity is found even in the way you name yourself in Pulse. Everybody kind of gets a name they grow up with and they can reassign their call sign as they grow older. So there's a kind of an idea of, of evolution of yourself that's um, not, not just genetic and physical, but cultural and like even on a, a name basis as well. You really are kind of expressing who you are. It's fiercely individualistic and that can be kind of scary if you are expecting a more communal environment. But there is a communal side of Pulse as well. The uh, public house is a big thing. Probably the like 501c7 clubs and community organizations are big things too. So while your family might be seriously splintered, um, there's going to be communities, places where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came, etc. So again, you might have a situation where the village is more likely to raise the kid and perhaps the home is a lot less likely. This is kind of feels like growing up in an alcoholic household almost, <laughs> where you got to go outside your family to find family. So you're basically saying that throughout your entire life in Pulse, you're encouraged to define who you are, perfect who you are, develop who you are. Yeah, you're going to become a PC. You just can't help it. <laughs> so basically, you're saying that everybody in Pulse is forever a child. You know, as, a, as, a, as I'm gay, I'm really kind of more okay with Arrested Development than perhaps the rest <laughs> of the world is. <laughs> but yeah, you could say that. TTI. 
Ironically, TDI, there's just not a lot about family there, despite the fact that Elsie has a large monologue about it. I think some little hints are that TTI is a fairly hands-on environment. It's small enough that they can kind of create curricula and guide people's educations. I'm babbling a little bit. Do you remember that one book where, like, an older guy is walking around looking at some kids training and he sees they're working with like four dimensional stuff, like little blocks that disappear and reappear because they're young enough where they can do that. Hmm. Not ringing a bell immediately. Oh, okay. Well, there was this book where, <laughs> okay, cool. Where like the kids were just playing with like advanced science at, at, at such a young age, they can kind of get the idea. And you look at some of the very few mentions of childhood in TTI and uh, song and silence, sound and silence. And they talk about like finding, biological lampposts and things like that, like Pokemon style searches and things. Very hands-on learning environment free with a lot of exploration. And it seems like they're kind of getting these sciencey exploratory values embedded in children at a young age. That's kind of neat. There's definitely a couple of themes through TTI when it comes to family. The first one, which you are already touching on, is that TTI very much encourages and develops curiosity, which is very much a childish trait, but they want that curiosity throughout their population. A little bit controlled and refined and know when to turn the curiosity off and just look down and shut up. But that that curiosity drives research, drives exploration, and that's that's what they want. Mm -hmm. You also get little hints throughout TTI that TTI has a bit more of an emphasis on family because family is calm, collected, controllable, unweird, not work. Like this is where yeah. you send your scientists to go back and kind of a safety go valve. home, be safe, get your brain out of the weird fourth dimensional pan galactic horrors. I can see that. Be comfortable, recharge, rest, and then come back and go back to work. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that as as a safe retreat. It's not really modeled because both of Elsie's parents were such hardcore, high-profile scientists in DTI. But one can imagine that the family might be like the safe safety zone for people to avoid exploding and the secrets that dad would bring home from work or mom or mom, dad, whatever organism comes home from work Hmm. might be really huge. And um, you could learn a valuable lesson by accidentally opening dad's briefcase or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And the colorful explosions that followed an element of TTI culture that's um, maybe a little darker, maybe not. It's really Fairly isolated in certain ways, uh, more prone to enclaves, arcologies. TTI is going to form a TTI ghetto wherever they're located, um, where their norms are stronger. Maybe all corporations do this to some degree or another, but TTI is kind of known for it. So you're going to be in, as a member of a TTI family, you're probably going to be living TTI even if you're in the heart of a Marsco town. You're going to be in your own block of flats that's heavily TTI oriented. And that's just the nature of that world. That does make a certain amount of sense if TTI organizes a little bit more around the family unit and many of the other corps organize a little bit more around communal living or communal villages. Mm-hmm. If TTI really is more the family unit, they wouldn't take as much advantage of that and would be seen as a little bit more enclavish or standoffish. I suspect that TTI um, and probably Regenitus as well both tend to avoid growth tanks more than some for fairly similar reasons, I think ideological purity, but I don't suspect that TTI is going to be very keen on Marsco or influenced programming in their children's minds so much, um, particularly as a smaller corporation, one that places, seems to place a lot of emphasis on experiential learning. I suspect they're going to have more real childhood time as opposed to more of the simulated environment that a lot of people grow up with. It's a thought. I can't prove it, but it does seem like they would probably be 
less inclined towards that kind of childhood experience. If we base on the assumption that Relay and Marsco control that type of infant programming code without other megacorps messing around with it, that's that's absolutely valid. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing that one of the primary products of TTI is transcendent technology, and I'm not sure you necessarily want your children implementing that. Although, eh, who knows? Spyglass. I feel like if you're summarizing Spyglass family and parenting, again, you're going to get into the kind of it takes a village type mindset. Literally, uh, Spyglass tends to emphasize community, cooperation, and free spirits. Sort of like a combination of Kafka and Norman Rockwell in my mind, um, of like legit neighborhoods and things. Parents seem to be able to like community shop where they'll go around and find a group or a village or a town that fits their mindset. So they're able to like look for environments where they want to raise their families more so than Marsco, where people are discouraged from hopping around. Wherever it is, it's a place where your parents have chosen to settle, and they're doing that because they value the unique social structure of that area um, and are going to fit into the economy, ecology of that place. I'm not really expressing this very clearly. Spyglass is a fairly libertarian organization. It's got very few rules except for the community, what the community establishes. And so you look for communities that fit your ideals, mm-hmm. and that's that's in canon. You have also have a very heavy streak of self-sufficiency that runs through it. Right. The family group, the family unit, and taking responsibility for and raising your own child is probably going to flow from that. I feel a little like we might end up with some Shirley Jackson's The Lottery stuff happening here as well. <laughs> <laughs> Spyglass has a, uh, a bad habit of surveilling everyone constantly. And besides social currency, Sing, the other major currency of a spyglass of the spyglass organization is secrets. So I wonder what percentage of your time you spend trying to keep your family out from underneath the eyes of the prism and trying to keep those useful indiscretions from being recorded. (laughs) It may be unavoidable, but um, if you're in a, a house, I can imagine a sitcom of being in a civilian family in a house with spyglass operation HQ in the area where everything is kind of being randomly surveilled and you're trying to avoid, avoid that and kind of awkwardly hiding in public babble, babble. I still, I still feel like more warm sepia tone from a spyglass childhood than I do from the other corporations though. Just the, the idea of these kind of knit communities that are close together just feels like a stronger fictional background for, for a well-adjusted person. (laughs) More traditional. Whatever that means, it's certainly the thing I experienced. Uh, skip to ASR. Uh, again, hands-on learning, hands-on experience is going to be very valued in this like very sciencey community. But ASR has some of the best responsive environments out there. So I'm imagining like a child raised from infancy-ish or like toddler age in a world that responds to needs and desires on a um, on an automatic level. Uh, ASR is at the forefront of um, mind to machine communication, integration, Mm -hmm. integration, not the right word, but they can, they have a lot of ways of just ascertaining like needs and desires and the world can be quite responsive to that. In a literal sense, the world is your classroom. Classroom or playground or uh, color palette or living nightmare, depending on how scary your child is. And to an ASR group, there's probably very little difference between those. Yeah. 
Um, so at the end of uh, The Incredibles, the baby starts shape-shifting wildly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the version of this I'm seeing in ASR is the kiddo gets a hold of the uh, home, the smart home's re- responsive settings and kind of goes crazy with it for a few hours. One thing they hint, they start to hint at, and I think they stole it from us, you know, uh-huh. is um, the idea of a responsive hollow home, which uh, turns up in 2.0. This is an environment where people can, where your house is like largely holography based and i think fairly easily you could establish a a living environment across a continent or a city or a huge physical distance where mom and dad integrate or interact through holograms as much as anything else so maybe half of your family is there or your extended family might come to visit on a regular basis in um, like shimmering light forms rather than actually being there physically so i mean your, your childhood might involve a lot of interacting with these digital ghosts of your um of your distant relatives and friends and things like that. Um, or maybe literal ghosts if someone's died and uh, dad or mom can't quite let go of them or something like that. So uh, simulations are going to figure prominently into your childhood memories mm-hmm. in all sorts of different ways, depending on how much money you have for your family has. Remembering one of Clifford D. Simiak's stories um, where they have intelligent houses and the houses can control the holographic walls. Well, we are definitely there. Yeah, yeah. But the main character um, is somebody out of time from the 20th century. Yeah, he, he's very boring. He, he frustrates his house because he just wants like a, a view of a forest with bunnies. And the house keeps saying, sure, you don't want anything new? I can do thousands of things. And finally, he just breaks down and says, sure, sure, do whatever you like. Then all of a sudden, the wall becomes an array of all different sizes of eyes all staring at him. And he's like, no, no, change it back. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I think ASR can get more dystopian than most of the other corporations really quickly. Some places where you can get sort of black mirror. We know that advertisements in all of Seoul are very responsive. So if you are, let's say you you pick up a new boyfriend or girlfriend, um, then you're going to get like advertisements that person's favorite chocolate or wine or lingerie or whatever. What happens when you're having an affair and hmm. suddenly the smart glass starts showing a lovely fox wearing the finest red lingerie? And your your wife or husband starts questioning why this is appearing on the walls all of a sudden. That huh. has long been worked into all of the advertising and marketing systems. They, if you pay extra. They would not show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For an added fee, we will not reveal your indiscretions online. <laughs> but we have found that disrupting the social fabric between parental units causes conflict that lowers the overall revenue generation and is a net negative to advertising revenue. So we... We do not call out indiscretions. Okay. We can leave that to Spyglass. <laughs> this is a little more maybe canon, but I think that there is a strong tendency in ASR to just separate from the world more. And in a poorer household, this could be really pretty, pretty messy. That movie Voices that we looked at recently where there's uh-huh. the kind of the crazy person who lives in a crazy world and his dog and cat talk to him. I forget if we mentioned this in one of the previous episodes, but it's still fresh in my mind. Uh-huh. And yeah. there's, a, there's a scene where we did mention this in a previous episode then. Yeah. Okay. But there's a scene where the reality blinders come off and he kind of goes sane for a while and he looks around his house and he sees that it's squalor. That it's horrible. Yeah. He, it's, he's momentarily lucid and he doesn't like one bit of it. <laughs> no, no. But what happens when you take off the VR goggles and you've got a life that you've kind of barely strung together and mostly prefer living in a fantasy world? People go there fairly easily and ASR doesn't necessarily control for that. Did you just spoil Ready Player One? 
No, in Ready Player One, <laughs> Ready Player One, there's no downside to going into the alternate world. <laughs> yeah, the entire world is like that, and everybody's well aware of it. <laughs> this is a, a loose parallel, but I know I was mentioning this re- recently in one of the storylines in Nature of Nature's Art, which is a world with non-anthro intelligent animals, but also humans. But the storyline takes place far in the future, and the spaceship that the main characters are on gets teleported far away from Earth, so it's no longer in contact with the Earth network. And all of a sudden, no one can talk to anyone because they're completely reliant on the network to translate everything, and they are very, very different. The, the, The mouse cannot speak human language. The human cannot speak and does not know mouse language, and so until they can get the local machines up, everyone is just kind of reduced to gesturing madly and making squeaking noises at each other and one can imagine a parallel where if you get really really used to having that level of integration if it breaks man (laughs) it's like how do we talk again how do i persuade people i'd make an arrow appear over where i want but i can't (laughs) some other stray ideas um I know ASR has automation built into everything. The One of the platforms of being in an ASR world is access to computing technology holograms and such that make the tedious day-to-day tasks more automatic. Mm-hmm. This is another place where people might be ch- tempted to fob off their, chi- their children's childhood on the machine, and justifiably so. So you might have your robo-nanny uh, as a viable option in ASR, for good or ill. Mm-hmm. Um, in ASR... A status symbol and kind of a sign of growing up is replacing one of your eyes with a display unit, uh, the Utila eye. And almost everybody has one by the time they're, you know, in their like late teens, early 20s, if not two. So maybe this is kind of like the mom, can I have the keys to the car story is mm-hmm. like finally getting your own virtual reality unit plugged into your eye. I could see that as being a major turning point in everybody's life in ASR and something that's kind of like, well, when you're 16 or when you're responsible or when you can afford it, which I can't afford it. <laughs> What was the, um, the the sequel to Ghost in the Shell in which the, the, the one major thing I remember from it is the heavily cybernetically enhanced big tough guy uh, who has all sorts of, of hardware in him. And do tell. Yeah. And, and he's he's in like a quickie mart. But someone hacks it, and so all of a sudden he's seeing his cyber eyes are pointing out that the little old lady, she has a machine gun under her thing, and she's reaching for it. And he, all of a sudden he's seeing everyone here is armed and about to pull the weapons on him. And so he's just kind of going into response mode until he figures out what's going that someone's hacking him. Someone is triggering all of his, oh, look, there's a threat. You deal with it. And if you'd like to explore this concept, I suggest you back the Kickstarter for 2.0, where it's written <laughs> into the technology. <laughs> yeah, You yeah. can be hacked, and your eye can be replaced with uh, different streams. Th- that's terrifying. Yeah. Stealing the personality engrams of your ex might be kind of a fun thing to do. Or if there's a messy divorce, you might have the ghost of your ex-wife living there, which would really help the child adjust to life in this strange universe. Quote, unquote, fun. Yeah, (laughs) I have broken ideas of fun today. Uh, Self-employment is really high in ASR uh, because of the large number of like art type people they they deal with in design. That doesn't necessarily increase the opportunity to bring people together, though. It kind of does the opposite from my experience. So there's another place where you might have some kind of messed up family dynamics. There's also a bit of a question of what you mean by together, because ASR is also going to be one of the prime areas that would have developed 
social media 2.0 and the ever-present connections through the digital world that really don't have the same type of physical or emotional connections yeah. that you need for health. So one, one kind of thing to another idea to just leave us with in ASR is the idea of a parent who's a scientist who every night neurotapes his children to maintain their personality in grams in case something goes wrong and how badly that could go wrong. <laughs> it's a great place for dark mirror type stories. Yeah. Marsco, there's not a lot to say about Marsco because it's the backdrop of everything, but there's some areas where uh, I think you can like make inferences of uniquely Marsco families. People don't move very often in Marsco. It's it feels more feudal in that regard than a lot of other corporations do. Uh, if they do move, they move in very predictable lines and patterns. So I think you might have a set a um, tendency towards generational families living in a smaller area than you might in other places, because people are uh, encouraged to be predictable and stable and not very dynamic. And uh, homogenous neighborhoods, homogenous areas encourage that as well. So I think you might have a situation where uh, an extended family lives in a close proximity to each other because that's not discouraged, it's actually gently encouraged. That might be kind of an interesting element of togetherness, like almost a mini ghetto that you might not get elsewhere. And I know that single species areas are not super common in HSD canon, but Mars Code probably encourage them more than some because they're controllable hmm. and control forable. Mars Code. Galactic suburbia. Yeah. Marsco has the uh, arcology building style in a big way. They have monolithic skyscrapers that have entire like mini cities in them practically. And some people can literally live their entire lives in these areas. Uh, so that's another place where you might get a lot of like single culture, monoculture type things going on. It's possible to live in, in Big M without actually experiencing the diversity that is in Seoul, generally speaking. So you could have some small-minded provincial people living in the biggest city on the planet because they just don't leave their building, their mm. giant structure. Because it's a post-scarcity world in some ways, they don't really have to because people can work on design and creativity stuff. They don't have to because this building can contain a city. They don't have to. So it could be very... You could have kind of your own your own barrio, your own cultural like mini grotto there that you never have to leave. So you might have a very lensed, tightly lensed version of soul there growing up. Your entire life from birth to carousel. Ah, sorry. You, you threw me there. <laughs> I don't really have much else to say on this. This is kind of a, a freeform ramble, but I think that um, there are hints as to how your character might have grown up scattered throughout the book. So you have to kind of draw them together. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else we can add to this or... Sounds like Marsco would have a very, very well-developed guided tourism industry. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> okay. Well, that's enigmatic. Thank you, Ashton. <laughs> and uh, catchy outro line. <laughs> well, I, I, or not. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> rewind, rewind. Pause that outro. And it, It's not unique to the game, but I think this setting is a fun place to look at what are... Humans and vectors are intrinsically humans. Humans, we have our own social patterns. There's not one human social pattern, but we do have certain focal points we tend to, to, to move around. Uh, the, the different species who have been made part of vectors have different social norms, like different sorts of pack animals, like, like hyenas or, or wolves. Um, it can be interesting to... Or, or hairless dogs. Or hairless dogs. It can be interesting to look at... Um, how might that affect their their social structure? I mean, the, the the fact that birds in the real world 
mom sits on the egg and dad brings worms. Well, uh, there's obviously there's not going to be a one to one correspondence to that, but I think it's it's a fun place to look at. What, what, how might you see some glimpses of someone who's approaching family from a slightly different direction? And you know, okay, possums, vector possums, I suppose, probably don't have identical quintuplets every single time, or do they? They might or, as like a retro thing. Sure, or a celebration of their heritage. Yeah. <laughs> what, wouldn't that be an interesting family st- structure where all the f- the like species, fa- other families you know, they all have identical quintuplets? Sounds sounds perfectly nightmarish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, it's the Joneses. Thump, 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 thump. There they are, all six of them. <laughs> okay, that's all. Okay, okay. Well, again, thank you all for joining us. Um, sorry about the uh, missing month. We'll probably be another one as we get ready for Alamo City Furry Invasion, where both Wines and I will be staffing and performing in the Alamo City Furry Invasion radio show. If you can make it into lovely San Antonio, October 5th, 6th, and 7th, I encourage you to be there and say hi for us, to us, at us. <laughs> Try and find us briefly in our orbits and say hello to us. Yeah. Um, and until then, catch you outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.